Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, today's guest, brand new guest, Zoe Norton Lodge. Now Zoe has a new show called Reputation Rehab that is about to air on the ABC. So uh, this Wednesday night, October the 14th, if you're in Australia or if you have an ExpressVPN and you can watch Australian television from another country, my show Groom is back for its 12th season. Uh, yep, we're going into our 12th year and it's going to be a very different year. Obviously, no studio audience, uh, Russell in a different state, obviously a new COVID style show, but also a lot of uh, changes in the advertising world and the world of capitalism and advertising and marketing for us to talk uh, about through our unique Gruen Prism. Obviously, in the first episode, we'll be having a look at some of the government messaging around COVID some of the advertising they've done, but also a whole bunch of other fun stuff as well. So make sure you check that out Wednesday night, 8.30, ABC TV or iView. And then two weeks later at 9.05, so directly after Gruen, uh, is this new show, Reputation Rehab. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have the two hosts of this show. Uh, today is Zoe Norton Lodge and uh, next week or the week after Kirsten Drysdale, uh, both on this show. Both the episodes are already recorded and uh, they're both absolute crackers. Uh, you're going to hear one of them right now, in fact. So thank you for tuning in. I assume you've tuned in for this episode and not just for this introduction for the episode, but Kirsten's episode that comes up in a couple of weeks is also excellent. So uh, you might know Zoe and Kirsten from The Checkout or a bunch of other stuff they've done, and they've made this new show, Reputation Rehab. Now, to give you an idea of what it is, I've actually just popped over to the ABC's uh website where they've got a little press release about it. So I'm just going to run you through that to give you a sense of it. We're officially living in an outrage culture. It seems that barely a week goes by without someone getting publicly crucified in a torrent of angry tweets and media headlines for real or imagined mistakes. Launching on October 28th at 9.05pm, because Gruen likes to run late, ABC's new series, Reputation Rehab, will tackle public shaming head-on and break through the outrage cycle with comedy and empathy. Hosted by the checkouts of Kirsten Drysdale, and Zoe Norton Lodge, Reputation Rehab, will find tarnished reputations and lovingly bring back their shine. Each week, the episode will begin with a deep dive into an outraged story or a person who has endured a public shaming. The first episode will focus on the bad boy of tennis, Nick Kyrgios, with Nick agreeing to a rare in-depth interview with Zoe and Kirsten for the show. Other episodes will delve deep into the stories of reality TV villain Abby Chatfield, headline grabber Todd Carney, tabloid target Osher Ginsberg, former philosophy guest Osher Ginsberg, as well as COVID-shaming Boomer Trashy and the reputational crisis facing anyone named Karen. So how about that? That sounds like an awesome show, right? I've seen uh, some early episodes, uh, not completed early episodes, but uh, Sophie Bram, who is the head writer at Gruen, is also uh, one of the geniuses behind this show. And so I've had a little insight into the process as it's come along, and I'm so excited that this show is finally going to be on TV. I think it's absolutely going to be a must-see TV show for anyone who likes Gruen and a must-see TV show for anyone who enjoys this podcast. So, yes, as I said, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have a little reputation rehab dedication here on Willosophy with uh, Zoe and Kirsten on the show to talk all about it and talk about their lives. And if you don't know those two and their amazing work, you'll get a little insight into their lives and personalities and the work they've done 
through these episodes. So there you go. Uh, if you like this show and you would like to support it, um, well, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. You can join for as little as a US dollar per month um, to help pay Podcast Mike, who helps put out all these episodes, James Fosdyke, who does all the original art, and everybody else who helps uh, with my project and um, making sure that brand new content is coming out every week, which of course, uh, while I'm filming Gruen will be, um, I'll be leaning even more heavily than usual on those people. So um, to support them getting paid and make sure that they're all looked after for the amazing work they do, patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go for that. And if you like this podcast and you want to hear more podcasts from me, maybe some more silly ones, then you can go to tofop.com. Uh, there's a whole bunch of podcasts there. There is the original podcast uh, that Charlie Clawson and I have been doing for over a decade now called Tofop. Uh, then there is Fofop, uh, which is my spin-off Tofop podcast, which is back and pretty regular at the moment. And of course, there is our AFL adjacent uh, podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, which is complete and utter nonsense. You don't need to understand <laughs> AFL to enjoy it. Uh, in fact, sometimes I think if you understand AFL, that might get in the way of your enjoyment of that. But in the meantime, uh, I hope you very much enjoy this episode with Zoe. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and first time guest on the show. Very excited to have this guest on the show. This is how the show starts and I say this as much for today's guest who's not heard the show before. Uh, so I need to, I, I don't mean to point that out in any shaming way, today's guest. I just mean this might, you, you might be like, this is a weird way to start an interview. They all start like this. It's fine. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Oh, um, I know that one. I got that one. Uh, my name is um is Zoe um Zoe Norton Lodge and um I'm a, a writer and um sometime performer. Okay, so that's that's the order that you put it in, writer and sometime performer. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Where, where did writing come from? So, uh, like, how did you become a writer? Because there's so many people who listen to this. A lot of creative people who listen to this show who, you know, would be sitting around going, "I'd like to mm. be a writer." How do you? become a writer other than writing things what is the process of how did you evolve into being a writer well well I actually always wanted to be a writer um from when I was a little kid um apparently my my mum said I came home with a certificate when I was about six saying I was Arthur of the month um which was author of the month um but I thought it was Arthur and I've kind of don't really recall a time that I didn't want to be a writer um and um Basically, my journey was, and, I, and when I say sometime performer, I think it's because I'm like, I'm less comfortable with the idea of being a performer, and maybe I've had a bit of a more complicated relationship with that industry. So I kind of also wanted to be Kate Blanchett, if you know what I mean. If I'm being really honest with myself, um, and when I was little, I um, I did lots of drama classes, and and I guess I don't know what it's like now, but when I was little, there were writing workshops and stuff you could do, and you did a bit at school, but it wasn't really. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of a solitary activity. So it's not really the kind of thing that, um, you know, uh, kids do in droves in activities like sport or something like that. Um, so I kind of just, um, 
I, I did it. I was always like, um, you know, I always got positive feedback for my writing when I was at school, um, whenever we did a creative thing. And then um, I, when I finished school, I try, I auditioned for NIDA and I almost got in, but I didn't. And I was like, fuck them idiots. Um, I'm better than that. And so when you audition for NIDA, what, what's that audition process? Like, are you auditioning to be an actor or did they, was it auditioning to be a writer at NIDA? No, I was auditioning to be an actor because I did want to be Kate Blanchett at that point. Mm. And I, um, you, you, I can't remember exactly. It was a long time ago, but you do um, a pile of, you do some different monologues. Um, and then um, from memory, it kind of just gets whittled down and you come back a couple more times and then they tell you um, to leave. Um, but one thing that they, um, <laughs> one thing that they actually said that really stuck with me um, was they said this before they'd culled me. They were like, if you don't get in tonight, uh, make your own stuff make your own stuff. That's the only, that's the most sustainable way to be a part of this industry is to make your own stuff. And it kind of stuck with me. And I think I was lucky that I did really enjoy writing and I, I, I really backed myself as a writer. So then I went to uni and I kind of, um, you know, joined the drama society and I would write these little plays and I had so much fun and I was so invested in them and, um, you know, at the expense of whatever degree I was doing. Um, and then eventually, um, eventually I did finish whatever the hell that degree was. And I decided to, um, be, uh, I decided to enroll in a master's of creative writing. Um, and so, and I loved it. Um, it was a sort of night course and, um, everyone in the class was really, was much older than me. There was the odd person who was about my age and then a lot of people were like sort of 60 plus and um, it was just such a wild group of completely different people and every week people would have to read out their stuff out loud and you would get to tear it to shreds and then you would get torn to shreds and I loved it. Um, It was so much fun. And um, at that point as well, um, I'd kind of, I, I always liked, I liked comedy. I thought I was funny, but I didn't, I was a bit scared of stand-up, Will. I didn't, I never did it. And I, I, um, I don't know why I was intimidated by it, but um, my friend Ben Jenkins um, and I started um, an event called Story Club, which was like basically a live storytelling night where you tell a, a funny true story about yourself. It's a bit kind of about oversharing and stuff and you sit in a big chair. But the the good thing about it is you have a book and the story's written in the book and you read it and it's like um, less scary than doing stand up and a bit more kind of um, it's a very, very different thing. Like it's more refined. It's less spontaneous. But um, but anyway, I started doing, we started doing that and like I was doing that with some friends and we got like sort of really brutal and competitive with each other about it. Like who can, who's going to share the most, who's going to be the most offensive, who's going to do whatever. And we were kind of just doing it at the pub at uni. And then we kind of just forgot to ever stop doing it until the pandemic, but that was 11 or 12 years ago. So we just kind of kept doing it and kept doing it. And gradually, um, you know, it was kind of a real, um, sort of avenue for me to meet all these other writers and, um, some cool people who, um, you know, were kind of working in TV, started to take a little bit of interest in it and participate. And, um, then slowly, but surely I just kind of like, I don't know, push the door open and just kind of let myself in. And I was like, I'm cool. I'm going to participate in, in this TV business. And, um, I ended up working with the chaser on, um, 
the show at the time was called The Hamster Wheel. It was one of their satirical um, political shows. And my job at that point, it wasn't being a writer. My job was, was called being a logger. And that involved sort of like inhaling um, like a sort of inhumane amount of news coverage, you know, like 15 hours a day in an eight-hour day. So you'd watch it on double speed and you'd kind of just try to mine it for jokes, like try to find funny things and then try to pitch them to the chaser and be like, hey, I think this is funny. Do you think it's funny? And, you know get a lot of rejection and occasionally some, um, you know, positive reinforcement and just kind of kind of kept going from there, really. Okay, so there's so much to unpack there. There's like, uh, I think I want to start with the idea of being at university, Mm. uh, studying one thing but being passionate about another thing. So, like, there is so much about the modern educational system that is designed, like, with a link to vocation, right? You know, this they, this degree is ridiculous. We've seen it particularly during the pandemic. You know, education has been devalued and this idea that education is only important if you are learning qualifications for the job that you are then going to go on and do in society. So mm-hmm. did you tell me about that university experience and, you know, what was of value to you and what wasn't of value to you. But I'm particularly fascinated by the idea of, you know, it feels to me like you were learning a lot at university, maybe just not in the way that people understand that you're learning a lot at university. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I think I actually, so what I, I did a Bachelor of Liberal Studies, Will, I don't even know if it exists mm-hmm. anymore. It's like um, you do an arts major and a science major and you have to do a maths course which was hilarious. And um, I got in trouble. I actually got in trouble. I got a note on my stats paper that said, if you're going to cheat, don't cheat with those people because you were all as bad as each other. Um, So, um, and I got a, (laughs) it's true. And I got a clean 50. I got a clean 50 and I knew enough math to know that 50 was enough like to to get through. And then I never, I never looked back. Um, So I did learn a lot in that course. I learned to um, make smarter friends if I I was going to cheat, um, but um, but which is actually great advice. Oh my god, it's Surround great advice. If you if you're going to ride on the coattails of others, make sure that at least yeah. they have good coattails. Forget the to ride cool on. person who like no no no. You don't want the cool friend. You want the friend who who understands maths anyway, or just better advice is don't do a degree involving maths if you haven't done maths <laughs> since year nine. Um, anyway, so, so I did, so, okay, that was probably not the highlight of my degree. I studied, I studied psychology, um, and English. They were my two majors and, um, I actually loved them both to be really honest. Um, but I kind of knew, I knew enough maths as well to know that I was never probably going to qualify as a psychologist in the way the system worked. It was kind of just like, they were so clear about it. They were like, oh, we kind of just like, it, the, the people participating in this kind of halves every year until there's like one or two left who are pretty smart and they become psychologists. And I was like looking around the huge lecture theatre of a thousand people being like, cool, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be one of them. Uh, that doesn't sound like that's going to happen. Um, but I lo- actually loved studying psychology and I loved studying English. Um, and I think because both of them to me are kind of really um, intimately connected with with writing. Um, and I like that um, they kind of informed each other as well, like learning about the history. I love the history of psychology. It's really fascinating and um, kind of, you know, shows a lot of beautiful and horrible things about humanity. Um, and I, I loved studying um, English as well. And I think that um, at the end of the day, I think I'm the kind of person who, um, like, I think I am quite ambitious and stuff, but I, I kind of like, 
I, I sort of am happy to go with the flow a little bit in a way. Like I never saw myself as a somebody who would do political satire, but when the opportunity emerged, I was like, fuck yeah, how fun. Like I can do that, I guess. Um, so I kind of like, I think that's been part of my, um, you know, what, what's helped me become a writer and, and have a career as a writer is that um, – I take opportunities and I kind of try to back myself to do them. And even if they're a little bit adjacent to what I thought I wanted to do, you know, having never done any of it, you don't really know. Um, so, so yeah. So at the same time as studying that, I was um, heavily involved in SUDS, the Sydney University Dramatic Society. Um, and I did a lot of um, plays with my friends. And to think about like the degree of seriousness, which we, which we took um, to these undertaking is 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 kind of crazy. Like I've put in more effort to university plays than I than we than I've seen people do on TV shows. Like it like, mm. and no one was. It's not like anyone was coming to the shows. Like sometimes I'd have to call my parents and be like, "Come and sit in the audience, please," because no one's here. It's really embarrassing. Because this is before like I'm I'm 36, so this is a long time ago. This is before there was no Facebook. There was no none of that. It was just like. You you literally spray paint in a graffiti tunnel the name of your play, and, <laughs> and someone would show up. Maybe, oh no, a few people would show up. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, so, what were your plays about? What were the themes that you were writing around when you were at university? Um, I think so. The kind of plays. So I well we we performed like I we I performed in you know plays of all different kind of you know very famous plays that we put on dreadful productions of. Um, but when I, I, I wrote, um, I, I think I had a lot of, like my writing had a, like a whimsical quality to it. I was very experimental. Um, it was, um, you know, we'd write, I'd write, I wrote plays with, um, a friend of mine, um, Kate Harrison. They were just, she was, she's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And, um, she was very passionate about um, certain like mythologies and and different things, and we would just kind of write these like big crazy plays that made no sense and would just go all over the place, and um, we just had a blast, really. Like we just had so much fun, and actually, like that was really interesting for me going from there to um, television and kind of learning how to go from writing the most niche thing that appeals to these kind of like really special parts of your brain and that you can kind of like bully other people into thinking is cool to being like, no, now you need to try to write something that, you know, a million people will get and like, like you, that won't happen, but that's what you're trying to do. <laughs> what I loved you saying about the chase of the logging role, because I often have people, you know, say to me, they'll watch the you know, John Oliver show or they'll watch something like the weekly or the chaser and they'll see the little interstitial and, you know, it'll be some cut up of like all these newsreaders saying the same thing or, and people will be like, Oh, how do they find those? The way they find those is they employ somebody on minimum wage to watch 15 hours of television yeah. a day looking I, for 30 seconds. Yeah. And, and, and four of us, there was yeah. four of us who sat there at the beginning and we sat behind this wall of candy for some reason um, that they, that everybody just would go to the convenience store and just create this wall of candy. I think it started as some kind of a joke, but it ended up costing me like 15 kilos. Like I just ate candy all day and, and watched, um, watched the news. And what happened actually is a few years into working with them, um, 
we eventually got some software which did some of this heavy lifting. And I was like, oh, my God, some of these other people have been using software. And I watched the Logies coverage six times to find these things. Because, like, sometimes what you're looking for is, like, a pattern. You'll be like, I noticed that, um, you know, people always say X. I think, I think I feel like I've seen that a few times and you always think you're going a bit mad because you, you watch the same stuff over and over again. And so then you, if you think something, you'll make a note of it and then you try to just catch it again and again and again, if you can. And like Chaz, um, used to say that it's like, you're like scooping the ocean for stuff. And it's like, you just don't know what's going to come up in that little palm of your hands at that time. You just scoop and scoop and scoop and scoop and you just don't, you just don't stop. Um, but then it's like when you do find something and it really does work and you've noticed a pattern and and that's the thing that, a, that the software can't do is can't be like, I think that this is recurring. Let me find out. Oh, and then you can search the software and, and, and find out, but essentially, you know, it's the human, you, you have to have that thought to begin with. Um, and yeah, there are, there are people behind those packages sometimes will people who've bled and sweated and cried into them. Yeah, people in comedy slave labor camps basically. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Brutal. So what do you that's a <laughs> that's a intensive world to throw. So if you believe in the idea and maybe you don't, but if you believe in the idea that the information we consume much like the food we consume has an external effect on us. If the food we consume affects the way our body works, then the information we consume affects the way that our brain works. You suddenly are watching an incredible amount of news. Had you up until that point in your life watched that much news or did you go from a world where you were casually dipping in the news to doing sort of an intensive training in the news a hundred percent that one yeah that's what i was doing i um i did occasionally um i did occasionally watch news and actually actually to be fair just before i got that job i did have another slightly random job where i was helping to manage the captions department at the abc so um i was um like assigning stenographers to um to cover um you know breaking news and and different things or whatever and so like sort of as a byproduct of that I sort of accidentally ended up consuming some news because when you because it's just kind of flying by but um but it was much more of a procedural administrative thing that I was doing but certainly hitherto like I would have you know I thought I was a smart person and I I guess I thought I was kind of across things but I think um it was you know definitely the like I'd ne- like there were there were programs I'd never even watched before before I did this job and also programs like um you know those breakfast shows that go for 3 hours are not meant to be consumed in full that is not the prescribed diet of those shows you're supposed to watch them for like 10 15 minutes you catch basically everything then you get on with your day um and because that is the method they're intended to be consumed they are just sort of like mind numbingly repetitive and you do start to question your sanity after a while watching it over and over and over and over again but yeah it was certainly that part was new to me for sure do you feel like it changed your brain because i'm fascinated at the moment about you know sometimes i'll listen to some trashy things or watch some trashy things and i 
I worry about how much it actually affects my brain, even on levels that I don't understand. You can think that you're an active consumer. I mean, you're sitting down in front of 15 hours, three hours of sunrise, not to just watch sunrise. You're doing it with an active brain, trying to find, you know, patterns and jokes and ideas and fuck ups and these sort of things. But at the same time, you're still watching three hours of sunrise. Do you think that watching that amount of news and the way that news was presented changed the way your brain was working? Um, I think it probably did change the way my brain was working, but I think it changed it in a positive way. I think it made me, um, it's like, okay, it's being presented to you, like you say, in a way to be very passively consumed. That's the point of it. You're just supposed to sit there and it just kind of gets like piped into your brain with very little effort from you. And when you're watching it with a completely different agenda, which is very, very different to what the producers intended, what the people on the program are intending, and you're going to make something new with it. You're like recycling it. Um, so you look at it very, very, very differently and it does change the way um, – it does make you a more kind of vigilant consumer of media. Um, but what what I also find amazing is how absolutely easy I find it to completely lapse back into just being a passive viewer. And I find that kind of fascinating and a bit scary that you can just go from one to the other. And for a while um, back there, we were doing a season of some sort of a news chaser show and then a season of The Checkout um, where we would be just consuming a boatload of advertising and, and all that sort of stuff. And so like we spent half the year watching the news and then half the year watching the ads. And then you kind of feel like you're just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, you have a totally different relationship with it really. And then you stop working and it's still there and you're like, oh, okay, now I just watch it like a human. It's, it is, I mean, I have some insight into this as somebody who, <laughs> you know, doesn't watch a lot of advertising nine <laughs> months of the year and then watches more advertising <laughs> than anybody in the planet for three months of every year and have done for the last 12 years. It's a very unusual way to live your life. Yeah, it's like an, right? some sort of weird intermittent fasting mental diet where you're suddenly exposing yourself to all these messages in such a concentrated way. But also you're looking at them, like you said, in a way they're not designed to be looked at, which I think is interesting. So you didn't start wanting to do, you know, political satire or news satire, but you found yourself in the heart of it, you know, working in the heart of a chaser show. You are now, you know, in a university for political and news satire. You end up, as mm. you said, on the checkout, which is, again, you know, a, a, well, a factual entertainment show, you know, much like mm. Gruen, it's a show that is designed to be both, you know, educational or at least informative but also entertaining mm. at the same time and now mm. you are currently and you know part of the reason that we've got you on today is that you have a new show that is about to launch on the ABC which feels to me like you've taken many of the things that you were interested in or that you've learnt about over the last 10 years and then funneled them into something that is uh, you know a creation all of your own so tell me, I, I know a little bit about this, but tell tell the audience of this show who might know less about what you're about to do. Um, so can you talk oh. a little bit about your current project? I can, of course I can. And this is the first time I've actually really um, talked about it in any sort of public forum. So I'm probably going to get, I'm probably going to do it wrong, but um, I'll give it, I'll give it my best shot. So um, I'm, I'm currently um, just completed shooting um, a show, a new show called Reputation Rehab, which stars me and Kirsten Drysdale, who was my, my co-conspirator, my sort of ride or die on the checkout. We did a lot of stuff together um, and we did a lot of stuff 
months together as well when we were doing, um, you know, political stuff with the Chasers. So we have a very um, long-term um, TV buddy cop kind of friendship. And um, the show, um, so it's me and her on screen, and the show was is created by um, Melina Wicks and Sophie Bram, who um, are two just phenomenal writers and producers who had this idea where they were like, what if we look at public shaming in a kind of forensic way but in a positive way and using comedy and entertainment and satire to kind of discuss it in hopefully a nuanced, a new way, which is a very lofty ambition. And it's an ambition they had a long time ago. So they approached me and Kirsten. Um, between us, we've had four children since we this, this idea has been floating around. So it's been a long time coming, a very, very long time coming. Um, and um, they approached me and Kirsten with this idea years and years ago. And we were just like, and they were like, would you front it? And we were like, are you kidding me? This is the greatest idea we've ever heard, of course. So we were so flattered um, that they wanted us to be a part of it. And then since then, we've kind of worked together a little foursome to kind of formulate this new um, this new format. And we all come from um, similar backgrounds. We've all kind of orbited each other's worlds for a while, um, uh, working largely in the kind of entertainment department at the the ABC or whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called now. I don't know if it exists anymore. Anyway, somewhere in the ABC. And um, we uh, basically the the way the show works is we take um, a figure or an idea um, from our from the world, mostly Australian, and we say, why has this person been publicly shamed? Why have we been shaming this person for for years and years? Why? What did they do? Is it really that bad? And is there any way we can change the way people think about them? And um, using using kind of truth and and comedy and heart and, you know, um, just kind of trying to have fun at the same time. So that's the that's the idea. Um, And it's interesting because, um, you know, there's been such a focus on on cancel culture quote unquote um uh you know recently but that's really not what our show's about it's not how it started it's just about public shaming which is something that's so much older than the last sort of couple of years it's something that humanity are obsessed with and um we just kind of wanted to see if we can um interrogate it and, and think about it and maybe change some people's minds about a few people Okay, so what did you have a relationship with public shaming before this project? Did you have a had you ever been involved in public shaming on one side or the other? Well, I mean, it's funny you you ask that. I guess like um so with the Chaser, um I worked with them on um quite a lot of shows including some of their election shows and when it was election time it was time to do stunts and I was so scared of doing stunts because um who wouldn't be um and and being that confrontational um is really sort of you know it's it, it's sort of like 
bungee jumping or something like your body doesn't want to do it it's it feels weird and and a bit wrong and you don't know what the outcome's going to be and like occasionally um because of the way the news cycle had evolved um you were doing a stunt and you were on television whilst you were doing the stunt on another program so you know um you might, like I was there was a couple of times where I was on news 24 and I was acutely where I could see their cameras and I was like I know that's rolling coverage I know I'm on TV right now but what I'm trying to do is make TV for something that's on in two nights time and you can't fight that news cycle so there was a couple of times where a stunt got away from us where I was like oh my gosh this story's run away from me um it's gone a completely different it's not what we no we were making a specific joke and now <laughs> some some politician is trying to own us and shit um so so that was kind of interesting to be a part of um the election cycle and um uh, yeah, so like, there, so there's one incident where like I, oh God, well, I mean, what the satirical point was is beyond me. But um, for some reason, <laughs> I was taking a rat to um, Bill Shorten uh-huh. and Tanya Plibersek got a hold of it and um, they got to talk about it a lot in the media before we were on air. And by the time we were on air, it was like, well, we couldn't rest the narrative back about whatever point we were trying to make. And I think partly that was probably because it wasn't a great point, to be really honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, what are you going to do? And you're like, you know what, fair, fair dues. You've totally, you totally won this. Um, But then, you know, there was another time where, um, you know, Kirsten and I, um, we were, we bailed up David Lionhelm, the then senator who'd been defending um, wicked camper vans, um, which had all these kind of like quite hideous misogynistic Mm. slogans on them. And he'd said that anyone who doesn't find them funny is a wowser. And we were like, all right, well, let's just give him one. So we made a van and we had all the exact same slogans, but we just replaced um, the female pronouns with his name. And we drove it up to his house and we were like, what do you think? And he was so mad, um, which was kind of great because we thought he would he prided prided himself on being kind of libertarian and being, um, you know, and, and finding them funny. So we thought, um, he would find them funny, but he did not. He, he, he was very, 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 very upset. And then that, that sort of happened. And then he started, we saw something, um, like he started talking about it a little bit online and we were like, Oh my God. And we just didn't know how it was going to go. We were like, Oh, maybe we're about to be face a huge public shaming. Like, like, because (sighs) Perception is everything um, and it's very hard to know what people are going to think if you're going to be able to be like, this is the point I was trying to make. This is the way I made the point. Please consume this point the way I intended. Please, please, please. And um, in this in this particular um, instance, people did. Like they were, they were like, yep, you got him. Um, I can't believe he was so angry. You know, he, it was, he, he, we really managed to successfully show him up as a hypocrite, but I was, I was concerned for a minute there. I was like, I think we also did something kind of confrontational and a bit full on and, you know, people could have gotten really, um, really mad about it. But I have to say, like, I haven't, I'm very gun shy when it comes to Twitter. I'm very scared of it. I never tweet. I've tweeted once this year um, and um, that's it. And I won't probably tweet again this year unless I have to tweet to promote the show. But anyway, (laughs) um, I just sort of feel like um, when you take a step back from it, from Twitter and you just start watching rather than participating and you realise like, oh, this is kind of a play I can watch, but I don't need to be on stage. This is better as a spectator sport than participating because it just seems to me like fucking up and getting shamed is inevitable and I have no interest in it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's uh, what what do you think when people do become because obviously you know you've made this show now and you've had time to think about this like i'm interested mm. firstly in the shamers the people doing the mm. shaming what do you think motivates those who and we've all had it don't get me wrong like i mean yeah. i think it is you know, like you could look back at a whole bunch of the comedy that I've made over the years that is essentially shaming somebody. Now, most of the time I would argue that it was, you know, for a good reason or it was someone who deserved mm. to be shamed. But I imagine that that's how a lot of people feel when they're in the when they're part of the mob, when they're in the process of shaming. So what's the what's the intoxicating feeling for the, the shamers, do you think? Um, that's a really good question, Will. I think that I think that it's a good feeling to have your worldviews confirmed and it's a good feeling to be doing the right thing um, and to be seen to be standing up for um, for what's right and what you believe in. It's something that we're taught to do, I think, even as children. You've got to – if something doesn't sound right, you stick up for it, you you correct it, you say what's right. And I feel like, you know, that's, that's no bad thing in principle and I think that um, that maybe is where it all starts and then if you do – stand up and you say, Hey, this isn't right. And people jump on and they're like, yeah, good on you. Good on you. Good on you. And then you just get this like wild dopamine hit of people just being like, yeah, well, you said that thing. I love that. You said that thing. You're a legend. And then you might get your dissenters, but often they're so vitriolic that you, and it might hurt, but you, you're able to sort of separate it and be like, no, they're the bad ones. The people who agree with me are the good ones. And I think that we've just kind of like, um, you know, uh, uh, we like, I don't know, I, like I, I, it scares me a little bit how online we've become and how we, you know, look at this one curated feed that no one else is seeing. And we don't really, even though we intellectually know that, we don't truly live through that knowledge. Like we're not like, oh, this is a particular thing that I'm the only person in the world who's seeing. We think that we're having this big shared experience and that we're, you know, really communicating. And of course there's I'm not saying all social media is terrible and that there's no communication, but I think that um I think basically that's where it comes from. It comes from a place of like social media has given us an avenue to speak up for what we um what we believe in and defend what we we like and um speak out against things that we don't it's very 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 easy to do and it has a very quick um reward so i think i mean what the fuck do i know well i don't know that's what i think <laughs> yeah but i'm interested in this because you have spent this time doing this show and i know mm. you know i mean obviously sophie and i work closely together for the people who are listening who don't know Sophie is the head writer on gruen and has been for you know a fair while now so her and i work very closely together and i understand the way that she attacks things and uh, you know I've spoken to her about rep rehab a bit you know in the development process and as you guys were getting it together and one of the things I was really fascinated by was this idea of how do you balance when somebody has been legitimately shamed like if the concept of the show mm. is can we uh, you know rehab this person's reputation how do you deal with the things easy to deal with the John Ronson of it all so you've been publicly shamed here's some example of somebody being treated completely unfairly for one mistake they made yes. in their life but if you're looking at someone who's made a series of mistakes you know mm. how do you deal with the ones that are legitimate versus the ones that are not legitimate 
That's a really great question. And it's definitely, um, you know, it's been a conversation, an ongoing conversation that we have all the time making the show. We, we, we argue about it constantly. It's a big thing. Um, we kind of have this like philosophy for ourselves. That's like, does the punishment fit the crime? And if it doesn't, it's fair game for our show. But sometimes you're like, well, you know what? Like, so like we don't deal with, you know, um, like if people have done something which we think, we're not saying that shame has, nobody deserves to be shamed. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying that um, it's become an overused tool. Um, And I, I was talking a lot about Twitter before, but I should just clarify that, you know, this is a, mainstream media massive problem and a lot of the people we've spoken to in our show like a lot of our shame shame me's are victims of mainstream media shaming that's like just as um unhealthy um unproductive you know unthoughtful as as any kind of pile on from a bunch of randoms it's really it's different um but it's definitely um no better but that's something we we try to look at is like does does this person did they deserve this level of shaming do they still deserve this level of shaming you know have have we done have we um done have we can can we move on um and um you know one of the people we speak to in the show is a psychologist and he talks a lot about the difference between guilt and shame and how feeling guilt can be um a can can be a helpful uh, feeling because you're reflecting on your own behavior and you internally feel like you didn't do something right and you want to correct it. But feeling shame is very different. Um, and it's more, um, uh, it's sort of more of a self-esteem crusher. And I think it's harder to, um, use feelings of shame to, um, better yourself or improve yourself. Whereas guilt can kind of, um, sometimes have a have a positive um, outcome in the end. Are you a person who's naturally open to changing your mind about people? And I guess the subsequent question about the show, did doing the show change your mind about someone? Were you yourself awakened to the idea of, oh, I had a really you know, terrible idea about this person from what I'd read or half observed on Twitter and now I don't have that same opinion having done the show? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that I like, you know, I think I, I don't think I thought anybody we spoke to on the show was terrible before we spoke to them, but that's just kind of, you know, I don't tend to think people are are shitty people most of the time, unless they truly are a shitty person. But what was so interesting is like every single person we spoke to, um, it's just so fascinating to realize that you've, you've been consuming this idea of them that's been, um, presented to you by the media or by social media or by comments or whatever, and then you meet them and it's always just a human being there who's just pretty normal, who's like, oh, this has been pretty rough or whatever. And and everyone does have a different response to their shame, um, a different attitude about it. It's really, it's been really, really um, interesting. But I would say um, every single person I spoke to surprised me, every single one. And we spoke to some Cool people. Does it? it well, can, 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 I don't know how much you're allowed to mention yet. So this will go, go out 
like the week before the show starts, basically. Yeah, I can I can mention. Yeah, oh, so Will, I don't what do know, you want to know? Well, I don't Ask know me. who's AMA. I don't know who's up your sleeve and who. I, I, look, I know that there is one guest in particular of an episode that I have seen some of, um, and I don't oh, yeah. know where it falls in your se- series, but a very high profile Australian sports person, which I thought was a massive, oh, yes. a massive interesting get for the show. Yeah. Um, so that's Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> I assume. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, I didn't know if I was allowed to tell people or if that was a surprise. Oh, but go on. Well, you. Well, we've done it now, haven't we? You yeah. can blame me. I said it. <laughs> no, we're allowed. <laughs> they were like, you can tell Will and the sus- the subscribers to Philosophy and no one else. It's exclusive. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. So. So Nick Kyrgios was. Um. Was a. Was a great. Um. Was obviously a great get for us. Um, Almost a perfect example if you're talking about an accessible, high-profile example of what we've been talking about. Someone who has, you know, what a, you know, like because it is someone who so often the judgments around them, you know, could be based on small amounts of evidence but seem to be a narrative from the media more than it is, you know, is the, what what you said before, does the punishment fit the crime? A lot of the time with Nick Kyrgios it feels like the punishment does not fit the crime. I think that's exactly right. Like he is a perfect example of someone where, you know, you so part of our show, Will, is that we talk to real people and we ask them um, about, the guest or the topic we're looking at. And, you know, pretty regularly people seem to have sort of swallowed the the kind of general collective idea. So with Nick Curios, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, he's got a bad attitude. He's a bad boy. He's a he's a he's kind of he has temper tantrums. He has this. And it's like that's how he's just coded. And the reason he's coded that way is because of um lazy uh and continuous media coverage that just kind of decides to um push that idea where, um, and there's lots and lots and lots of things about Nick that you could, that you could talk about in the media, but that's kind of become the, the headline consistent one for years and years and years. And, um, you know, when we went to chat to him, we were just like, oh, he's just a really, really, really cool guy who is so nice and really funny and has such a huge heart and is a really, really great tennis player. <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> like, what? How did? How the hell did this happen? You know, um, like, and we looked at lots of, um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, and it's hard to sort of discuss how unfair it is without shaming other people. But like, my gosh, like some things other sports people have done, other Australians have done, other, you know, it's. The kind of t- like even the the tantrums. Everyone has tantrums on the court. Um, it's so like smashing rackets. He's really known for. Oh my gosh! Like we just did. You know, you do the the most cursory search, and you can just find a montage of billions of people smashing rackets. It's just like the done. It's just the done thing. Um, but it was it was so. You know, he was so generous um, to to talk to us, and um, we we spoke to his mother as well, and that was really amazing. And that's something you know, like I'm a mum, and I spoke to a few mums on through the course of making the show, and I think that's just that's just something to remember about everybody is some mother's darling, everybody. And I think that um, when you speak to someone's mum, and you you see you get that opportunity to see that person through the eyes of their mother, it's very hard not to not to see them as a human being. Not even just that, but I would I would put this forward, and this is a little self-serving, so I admit that, but it's philosophy with Will Anderson. People understand that sometimes this show is going to be self-serving. Um, the... <laughs> 
I have, you know, been publicly shamed sometimes justifiably and sometimes not justifiably, you know, over my career. And I'm one of those people who thinks, you know, it's pretty much the cost of doing business. You know, the the forum in, in which I operate is a forum where, you know, some people are going to like you, some people are not going to like you. Sometimes that's going to backfire. Sometimes that's going to be a positive thing. But I will say that when it's at its worst, it's how much it's hurting my mum rather than how much oh. it's hurting me that is always yeah. the thing that, you know, I can handle it. I'm a big boy and most of the time I can handle anything that comes my way, but I do feel particular compassion for my mother who also has to go through those. If somebody is writing that thing about me in the paper or, you know, saying that thing about me on some show or on the news, my mum is seeing and consuming those things and she doesn't have the hardened skin that I have towards those things. Yeah, and it's not just having hardened skin. It's like it's it's seeing your child go through something so horrific and unfair that you can't control like your compulsion as a mother is to is to protect and to help and defend and you know like Nick's mum talked to us about you know trying to defend him on Twitter and that being an absolute disaster because like (laughs) it's Twitter and she's you know a mom (laughs) like you know it's a disaster waiting to happen right um but you know, like we spoke to, um, you know, some another person's mother, like who, um, you know, sh- we saw a video of her trying to cheer up her daughter when she'd been shamed by putting on a wig and imitating her daughter and pretending to kind of do, you know, the moment that she was shamed on TV just to try to do anything to, to sort of help. And I think that, um, you know, and like it's, I'm, I'm so thrilled for you that that you don't, um, you that it doesn't affect you, Will, and I, like it really. It, it really, what I've learned from talking to so many different people, and we talk to celebrities and not and, and non-celebrities as well, I should say. There's plenty of, um, you know, just um, regular Australians who've been publicly shamed who we spoke to as well. But um, you, I think that's important thing to for people who are considering or, or participating in our shaming culture to know that you don't really know what the impact of what of feeling shamed by the public is going to be on a person. You know, some people get suicidal. Some people um, have tremendous depression and anxiety that's completely triggered by um, these events. They're the kind of things that you can ruminate over and over and over and over again. And, you know, um, and then some people we spoke to were just like, do you know what? I don't give a shit. And they truly didn't. So, and that's cool as well, but you just, it's an, unknowable quantity what that impact is going to be on a person and I think that we'd all do well to remember that. So does it worry you at all when you do a show like this you learn so much about how easily it can happen Mm. does it worry you at all that this show in particular I mean this is you know you are out the front of this show this is Mm. you know the two of you are going to be the the faces of this show and Kirsten's on the show next week by the way this is my little rep rehab two weeks of philosophy in a row because I think this is thank you Will well also I mean I'm excited about this show I'm excited for the passion that Sophie's put into it and I've like you know heard her talk about it for years and I think it's a really cool idea and it's certainly connected Mm. to the world that we live in, you know, often mm. when we're doing groom, we're talking about people's reputations and, you know, how they're formed and how they're, you know, manipulated and how they can be brought down. And, you know, it is an area that is fascinating to me, but also because I've been in the middle of it, but you suddenly are going to be the person who's in the middle of it. 
you're going to be the mm. face of it. In the same as way as Craig Rucastle is now the bin guy, you know, and has to spend mm. the rest of his time. You are a person who, like, really is a bit front and centre. Doing this show mm. about how easy it is to be publicly shamed, does it give you any nervousness that you are suddenly, you know, kind of stepping right into the centre of that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it should. That is a sensible answer. <laughs> I actually spoke to someone for our show, Will, who's um, like works in this industry. There's a whole reputation industry that I didn't really know about. Um, and we talked about, I've talked about this, like, what can you do? Like, is there a preemptive strike you can make? And, um, you know, we even discussed the idea of doing like a preemptive apology. Um, because you're right. Like, basically, you know, they're like... I, I'm not saying like where there's smoke, there's fire, but like, it's not like the, these events, the shamings come from absolutely nothing. And we're not saying that they all come from absolutely nothing. Like there's sometimes is something that's happened. And sometimes people have been really hurt by, by someone, um, whether that's because they've made a joke that, uh, that people, um, that was offensive to some people or whether that's because they've like, you know, really um, mismanage the expectations of their fans, like that might happen with a sports star um, or whether that's because they've behaved a certain way on a reality TV show that people think is um, deplorable. And um, when you decide to, to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to stand with this person and we're going to face it together. Um, it's, um, it's, it's white terror. <laughs> <laughs> So when you know that, how do you put that terror aside? And I guess it goes back to what you were saying about stunts in a way, is this yeah. idea of this is not a situation in which I necessarily feel comfortable. Everything about my body is mm -hmm. telling me that this is an awkward thing to be doing and yet yes. you decided to Here do I it am. anyway. Mm. Are you asking what the fuck I was thinking? What? Well, yeah, I am. Well, I want to know not what the fuck were you thinking, but I do actually want to know what the fuck yeah. are you thinking? You know, what is yeah. it when you are I, in that arena? What gets you from knowing that this is a really scary, dangerous yeah. thing to do to actually then still do it? There's a few things that get me through that. Um, one of them is that, like, I so wholeheartedly believe in the show and I believe in the girls that I'm making the show with. Um, it's, you know, there's not a lot of shows that are made by, um, you know, um, for women comedy writers, producers who we've been working on lots of other people's shows for a long time and this is our kind of shot and we're fucking taking it and um, I we've worked so hard and I really do believe in what we have to say and I hope... I also I think that like what like I, there's a lot of debate about it. It's it can become very political, but um, most people who I speak to when I explain what the show's about, they're like, "Oh, someone's doing that." It feels like this is the area that um that is a bit of the elephant in the room in a way, um, and you know like if we're gonna go down, we're gonna go down swinging, and at least like if we do get shamed or whatever, like I. I at least am proud that we tried, you know, I'd rather go down trying something than, than not trying at all. And I think also on a more kind of just like stupid level, like I love making television. I absolutely love it. It's like my favorite thing to do in the world. And, 
Um, it's been so much fun to kind of for the four of us to be able to really take the reins of a show and just kind of gallop with it and um, and make a completely new show. This is not a format that exists. Like it's completely, um, you know, uh, something we we made up. Um, and um, and I hope like. I hope people can at least see that we tried. <laughs> so you talk That's about, and it's it's sad that this is an unusual thing that we need to talk about, but unfortunately it still is an unusual thing that we need to talk about. You spoke about the idea of it being, you know, for women, you know, behind the scenes and in front of the camera, a very female forward show that isn't, you know, sex in the city. This is just, you know, a an ABC, you know, uh, interesting educational comedy show uh, mm-hmm. that happens to be made by a bunch of women. Was there, is there, I guess, and I hear this in comedy a lot. I guess I'll put it in that example because it's mm-hmm. an area I feel more comfortable talking about. But the idea of early on, if you're a gay comedian, you feel like if you're on stage, you're representing all gay comedians and if you were the only female comedian on the line it wasn't just your performance that night if you weren't funny then the audience went away thinking you know oh all women aren't funny which is a completely unfair you know thing to put on any one individual but Mm. unfortunately it does seem to be the way that people's brains still work is there any extra pressure you know say like with that feeling of going here's a bunch of women it's our show we're, we're you know it's our format we're not doing someone there's not some you know you know you know charlie's angel style you know secret man <laughs> behind this you know making <laughs> making it all work in this direction does it does it come with extra pressure just because of that honestly not for me um because i know these people are like, you know, some of the most talented people I know. Like, it doesn't matter what their junk is. Like, they just are bloody talented and they're bloody experienced. And it was, you know, it's our it's our kind of time. So I I don't feel that I'm proud of it. Um, and I've I have to say it's something that um, I, you know, I remember doing you know uh, like occasionally doing a comedy thing and people being like, oh, you were the funniest woman tonight. And I would just like, no, funny person. The word you're searching for is person. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's, and you know, like I have to say that I feel like the, the, you know, since my time in TV and, um, and stuff, I feel like we've made so many leaps forward and obviously there's so much work to do for, for so many people and so many areas of representation, but, um, you know, like things have come a long way since I first walked into, um, being a logger at the ABC with the chaser because there were not a lot of girls then. I mean, that was not a lot at all. I mean, you were walking into a predominantly male co- yeah, comedy outfit and television outfit at well, that stage. There were none. There were no girls. There were literally no girls. It was 2012. It wasn't like, mm. you know, a million years ago. But <laughs> Way back know, in like, the day, 2012. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It's depressing, isn't it? But, like, they, you know, and, and to the chaser's credit, like, they were, they, they were nothing but embracing and... They, you know, like if my idea was shit, I knew it was shit. If it was good, I knew it was good. That was it. It was just, you know, just a job. Um, and, you know, they, they've been so <laughs> supportive and amazing, really. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, no, I know, like I get what you're saying and I think that, um, I, like, it, it is a bit sad that it, it's – kind of unusual for it to be run by four women, but I'm sure that's all 
starting to change and I hope that people I just hope people watch the show and they go that was a fucking good show that's all I hope and that I don't get cancelled <laughs> oh yeah well I mean they're two good hopes I, and I think yeah. they are gonna th- I think they are gonna think it's a really good show I feel it feels very much to me like the sort of show that anyone who watches television on a Wednesday night on the ABC you know this is you know a show that is very much you know, in that grand tradition of ABC Wednesday nights of making interesting and entertaining shows. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm very excited that the Wednesday night lineup will be, you know, Hard Quiz and then Gruen and then your show. It's going to be a really fun night to, you know, sit down in front of the ABC and see a whole bunch of really interesting entertainment, I hope. So that's really cool. What was it like to make a show in the middle of a global pandemic, just in a practical sense? Because suddenly you've got the green light on this show. You know, it's it's going to be happening, you know, you know the timing of it and then suddenly there is a global pandemic and everything gets shut down. In just a practical sense, what was it like to make the show? Do you want to know something? That wasn't even the hardest practical thing about making the show. What was? Um, Kirsten and I both had babies. Okay, yeah, that is, that is harder. <laughs> so, so I had, so we were supposed to start making the show earlier in the year. Yeah. I had a baby in February and Kirsten had a baby in June and we shot in bit in April, I think. And then in, from the end of July, it was, it was wild. Um, but it, so it like the, the practicalities of it were, we, we all, okay. Well, the thing is like, you know, we believe it or not, we knew we were pregnant. So we actually were able to kind of like, you know, <laughs> plan um, around that a little bit, but because we'd kind of created this um, absolutely gnarly production schedule to deal with our babies, when the pandemic came, it was like, oh, fine, throw that on the heap, <laughs> throw it on the heap. And, um, and actually in a way, um, you know, we actually got to speak to, I think it put everyone in a um, kind of philosophical place. I think it made more people interested in talking to us. I think it made some people more available to talk to us who aren't, say, overseas, playing in a tournament or whatever. Um, but, yeah, the pra- it's been, um, you know, a, a huge amount of kind of uh, just sort of baggage and admin and... Um, and God knows what. Um, but at the end of the day, like when we really got into production, it was like, come on, all right, we can do this. Like we're not, we, nothing can stop us now. We've come this far. And I think that actually all of the, um, all the, the babies and the pandemic um, and everything really like, I think just helped us really crystallize. Like this is, we have to do this. We've got to get through it. We've pushed past this. We've pushed past this. We just have to like, now we just have to do it. Um, so I think it, I think it fed our ambition and, um, our desire to just kind of make it as good as it can be. Uh, I ask people on this show if they have a philosophy of some kind, uh, you know, the question sometimes comes at the start. We've managed to bang on for an hour before I've actually got to it, which is always a good sign. I like if I've got to an hour into the podcast and I still haven't asked you if you have a philosophy. So, so what is, uh, do you have one? Do you have a a life philosophy of some kind? I do actually. And it's a philosophy that I only came to, um, at the beginning of the year. So, um, at the beginning of the year I had, um, I had a baby, little Clyde is my second kid. And he was in a lot of trouble when he was born. We spent um, 
two weeks in the NICU and it was the most horrific, um, traumatic experience of my life. It was just like, it was like staring at this like intolerable sort of pain that I didn't know how I was going to deal with. I really thought he was going to die. And um, he pulled through and he's absolutely fine now. He's got no, you know, long-term um, impact or anything from it. So we're so lucky and so grateful. And I think that um, I think it's really um, unusual to be able to kind of stare at something like that, like really stare at the abyss and then walk away with everyone like everyone's still intact. Everyone's still okay. I have another kid too, two, he was two at the time. And it really just made me realize that I only care about two things. I only care that my family are kind to each other and that we always have fun. That's it. So that's all that the only rules in our house is that we always try to be kind to each other and we always try to have fun. And you know what? Like, we fuck that up sometimes. Everyone does. But that's the only... There are goals. So did you take that attitude into the making of the show? Because it's also a good life attitude. Like, if everybody is kind to each other and everybody has fun, but it's something that's some... As you said, it's never more fun than when you're doing the university plays. You get into the real yeah. world and it turns out that all these things that you thought would be incredibly fun and everybody would be kind and happy all the time, not everybody <laughs> is kind and happy all the time. Is that an attitude that you try to take to work as well? I definitely do. I, I do try to take that into my work and, um, you know, I think that um, I think we did really try to be kind and we really did try to have fun. I think we really tried to do both those things with this show and I hope they do kind of come through. Um, but for me as well, it, part of it was like kind of learning that, cause you know, working in TV is really exciting. I, I still feel really like honored to, to be here and to be a part of this, this industry, which I, I love participating in, but I also, um, kind of needed to lean out of it a little bit. Um, and that wasn't just with, with what happened with Clyde. That's just been the last few years. I've kind of realized that like TV is great. Work is great, but you know, my family is really all that matters. And I, you know, I kind of decided to lean out of that a little bit and lean into them a little bit more because like my, my partner works in TV as well. And we would spend, you know, sometimes we'd sit in bed doing like a, a, a Skype meeting or whatever. And this is pre pandemic when you didn't have to do that. And it would be like midnight and we'd be like, what are we doing? Like, this is, this is wild. So I think that, um, yeah, like I, I do think having fun and being kind, I think you can make TV, you can make edgy TV and you can also be kind, be kind and have fun. Um, but I also think that it's important to just remember that it's just a job. So, uh, death is something that is a regular question on this podcast. And obviously, you know, you've got a different perspective on it from what you've talked about with Clyde, which is the idea of normally I ask people about their own death, but if you don't mind, <laughs> and if it's not being too intrusive, like no, no. Um, I would love to just, you know, spend a moment talking about what that was like, because I have no insight into it. I mean, obviously I don't have children of my own, but you know, I'm a human being and I can understand that, you know, the, the fear that your baby was going to die would be amongst the mm. worst things in the entire world. So what, what was that time like? How much had you thought about death previous to that? And how, you know, how realistic was it in your mind at the time? Well, I think that, um, 
the I've never spoken about this before, by the way. So this is um this is this is just for you. But, Good, um, I appreciate that. I need a little bit of a but, juicy philosophy <laughs> exclusive. Thank you. Um, but but no, it's nice to speak about it. But um, but um. I think when you have kids, I mean, everyone's different. I don't want to speak for everyone's experience, but I think that, you know, I did have a kid already and you do think about their death. It's like suddenly you've got this kid and it's like, it's like a Tamagotchi, but a really, really special one. And you have to keep it alive. You have to keep it alive, keep it alive, keep it alive. That's the kind of like just sort of reptilian part of your brain. That's why you get up in the middle of the night and check on them even when they're actually asleep and for once. Um, So you kind of have that um, as sort of this, I guess, like dull um, kind of constant thing that you, that's just kind of there, like, and you, I think it's probably just an evolutionary thing so that you keep, you keep checking on them and you do keep them alive because they're pretty stupid and they need somebody to really, really, really make sure they're alive. Um, but when I really was at that crossroads with Clyde, it was sort of like, um, so he was, he was born, he was having some trouble breathing. And what happened was it was a really slow descent into hell. So they were like, he'll just be gone for half an hour. This after he's born. I was like, okay, half an hour. That's okay. And they're like, I'll be four hours. And I was like, okay. And then they were like, okay, he's going to spend the night down there. So he's downstairs in the, in the place for sick babies. And I was upstairs and I was like, oh, okay. And then they were like, you can go and see him. And somebody wheeled me down to, to see him. And he, um, was connected to some machinery like that was helping him breathe and I wasn't allowed to touch him. They were like, if you could, if you touch him, that might, um, you know, that might make things worse. He, he's too sort of fragile. And so it was really kind of this crazy thing because as a mother, all you want to do is, is hold your baby. That's all you want to do. And I knew I couldn't. And it was really, um, it was very kind of sad, but it was almost no room to be sad because I was just so afraid. And then, um, then he, so he was struggling a lot to breathe. He was on a machine. And then these several doctors came to my ward at the same time. And I was like, this is weird. And they were like, he's, there's a hole in his lung. Um, there's, a, there's a hole blown in his lung. And so it's collapsed. His lungs collapsed. We need to do a bit of an operation and we're going to have to intubate him. And I was just so afraid because I didn't know I wanted them to go to get on with the whatever they had to do but I just didn't understand the implications I just knew the thought of you know being on a ventilator um you know newborn baby I was like you don't know what's going to happen I don't know if he's ever going to come off it um I don't know and I had to wait this hour while they did the procedure and honestly it was like it was like I don't know how to describe it but it was it was like being in my own body was totally intolerable to me. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. I was on a lot of uh, endone, <laughs> which probably like, I remember saying to my doctor, I was like, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. And he was like, how many endone have you had? And I don't know how many I'd had. And he was like, you're not going to have a panic attack. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you drugs. Um, so I kind of just like, I just, I just remember like, um, you know, having these weird rules where I was like, 
I didn't want anyone to come into the my ward without telling me who they were first. So I could see shoes and I'd be like, somebody, like my husband would be like, it's Mark. And I'd be like, okay, come in. Like I sort of, I was just trying to like, um, you know, grab onto whatever the fuck I could control, which was very little. I couldn't control, you know, I had a catheter in. I couldn't control anything, right? So I was just lying in bed, just trying to seize any modicum of control that I could. And um, it was like the longest hour of my life. Um, I honestly went for like 40 days. It was just crazy. And then we got a call and they said the procedure was okay. And we went down and went to see him. And at that point he'd been moved to the, um, you know, the, the intensive part of the unit down there. And he was just um, medicated to unconscious. And he just was lying there. He looked very peaceful, but he was so tubed up and they were like, it's done now. And it was like, um, but, but he wasn't breathing for himself. And I just didn't know if and when that was ever going to happen. And it was just like, I was just so, at that point I just was so sad. I was just like, just lost and sad and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was possibly going to, like, carry on. I really didn't. And then it was my little two-year-old turn two. It was his birthday and he wasn't, he couldn't come to visit because, well, he was allowed to come in, but I didn't. This was also, by the way, this is the first of Feb, so it's like COVID's about to happen. By the way, so it's like I'm I'm here, and then we're about to hit COVID. So, um, you know, we had this little this little tiny birthday for my two year old in um up in my ward. We had like a little balloon, and he played with the bed, moving it up and down. And I remember just saying to Mark, like, we just all we just need to be kind to each other, and we just need to have fun if we get through this, if we get through this, we can get through anything. And if we get through this, then that's all I want. I don't want to ever sweat the small stuff. Never. And I don't want those boys to feel anything except that we, we love them and that we, we want them to love each other and that we just always want to try to try to have a good time because that's all that matters. And then, you know, slowly but surely he started to get a little bit better. He got worse first. He blew another hole. <laughs> and then, um, you know, he slowly got a bit better, a bit better. And then eventually I was so, allowed to hold. Uh, I, again, like if I, 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 I hesitate to even ask other questions while you're talking about this, but, um, I, you, so you mentioned that you thought that he was going to die. Mm. So was that, the predominant thought that you had or was that a fleeting thought in between, you know, hope and... No, I just, I thought about it. I, it was the predominant thought I had and it was like, almost like I had to, I had to steal myself by accepting it and being like, okay, if it happens, at least I've accepted that it could happen. You know, it was like a sort of almost like a protection thing to think about it and be like, okay, this is this is definitely on the cards. Um, so I really had to sit with that feeling for a long time, um, when it, in that really, you know, immediate sense, like this is, this is going to happen. I thought about it a lot. I thought about, you know, if we'd have a funeral for him, I didn't want to tell, there was an early, early time. I didn't want to tell anyone his name because I didn't, I thought that telling people his name would make it harder for them and harder for me. If he was just a baby, he was just a baby. Like I knew his name was Clyde, but I didn't, I didn't want to tell anyone. That's just so fucking sad, really. But then eventually when, um, you know, he did start to get a little bit better and I could hold him finally, he was still connected to all these like 
cords and, and everything. And he was like this little floppy little marionette puppet connected to, <laughs> to these like, you know, wires. And I finally got to hold him and I like my body just did this crazy thing <laughs> will where it just like, cause I hadn't been able to feed him. Right. I'd been pumping, 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 but I wasn't able to feed him because he wasn't able to tolerate it. I had to feed him through a little test tube that was going straight into his gullet. Um, but because I hadn't been able to feed him, like I, I, I was holding him and my boobs just lost their mind. And I, they just started like, like raining on him, like raining, 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 raining. And then suddenly I'm in this like worst wet t-shirt competition in like a surgical <laughs> gown that's like borderline see-through. I think I'm going to electrocute the baby because everyone's covered in milk. I had to literally call for another gown. They're like, what is going on? Like we almost needed to mop the floor. It was just like, it was like my body was like, this is all I can do. I just want to help. I just want, I'm Greek as well. Like we're feeders. So I think I just wanted to like feed, feed, feed. It was so crazy. And then like eventually and then, so that was like the first step in the right, like holding him for the first time. And it's like, you know, there's so many kind of positives about like living through something like that, like to like no cuddle I will ever have in my life will be that special. Like there's nothing more special than that being like, finally, it's you and me. There's a lot of wires going on, but I don't even give a shit. I don't care. I just can feel your skin against mine. Uh, were you a person who thought about death much beforehand? I often, when I speak to parents on the show and I ask them about death, um, you know, a lot of the time, even if they didn't think about death before they were parents, they, you know, you suddenly are aware that your own death will substantially affect somebody else's life as well. Were you somebody who thought about your own mortality a lot before having kids? And do you think about it a lot now? Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where I sometimes catch myself having lapsed into fantasy, like writing my own eulogy or a eulogy for someone else. And I don't know why it's sort of like, it's so, um, it's both so sort of unproductive and also so, well, it's inevitable. I mean, I'm not going to write my own eulogy, but you know, it's like all this stuff is so inevitable. And I think we spend so much time, um, ignoring it because otherwise how do we carry on? Um, but then, you know, when you kind of, when you, I think I honestly, I think I think about it less in a way than I did before this happened. I think before it happened, it's kind of was just like, okay, cool. Well, I've done all my, brush my teeth. Now it's time to just take myself down a little traumatic walk um, through uh, planning my husband's funeral for no reason or whatever. <laughs> um, but I think now it's like, like it sounds like I, I feel like I sound like a religious nut or something, but like it almost was a religious experience to be like, cool. Well, like we get to live now. So let's bloody do it. Let's bloody do it and let's have a great time. Let's have the best time we can possibly have. And so that's, I, I mean, I love that for a start. And I think that that is, there's a simplicity in that philosophy. You know, it is something, the idea of, you know, loving each other and, and trying to have as much fun as you possibly can is something that is a guiding philosophy that also has some achievability to it. Does it have... <laughs> Does it have broader ramifications? So what this show is about at its very heart is, you know, the, the meaning of life. It's just hard to ask someone right at the start, you know, what do you reckon the meaning of life is and why are we here and what is the purpose to being human beings? So, you know, we, we warm up with an hour of, you know, small chat and then we get to the, <laughs> the really meaty stuff towards the end. But it, it feels to me like you've, you know, obviously had an incredibly traumatic event and it's, you know, 
cemented in your mind, you know, some general principles about how you will give meaning to your life. So what do you believe the reason we are here is? Are we just an evolutionary accident in the corner of the universe and we have to make our own meaning or do you think there is any grander design behind that? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is also Do people a normally have a, a quick answer, answer for that? Uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I think um, I don't know if there's any greater meaning. I think we're sort of blessed and burdened with these like, you know, as social creatures with these big hearts and lots of feelings. And I think um, I think I honestly think that I don't know if there's any greater meaning, but I think if you can't, I think, and I know not everyone can enjoy themselves. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's bloody hard. Um, and you know, I'm not suggesting that, Oh, just enjoy yourself. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but, um, I think that, um, you know, we're obviously at such a crossroads without, with our planet and we need to take things very seriously and we need to, um, all chip in and do the right thing. And there's so much going on there that I think maybe that is our greater purpose at the moment is to see if we can actually like figure this shit out or if we're all going to just blow up in an inferno. Um, so, you know, that little thing aside, um, I do think that, um, you know, as much as you can be nice and have fun, then like do it. And, and you know what, like, and I, I'm so far from perfect at that. I'm not saying I'm good at that, at, at either of those things, but I try. <laughs> so I, if you could fix one thing about the world, if I had the ability to just fix one thing about the current state of the world, what do you think our number one priority is? The climate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a trick question. <laughs> no, I is mean, it, every, sorry, uh, everybody's. B, B, D, it, no, can I, is it B and D? <laughs> So if that is true, what is your current take on how well we're doing and how seriously we're taking, you know, the climate? Oh, wow. Um, I think we're doing appallingly. Um, I think that um, it's very hard to know um, because we only, because everything's filtered through confusing algorithms and bespoke news feeds and whatever, but I get the distinct impression that not enough of us think that things need to be done and that it takes, it's going to take an overwhelming amount of sacrifice um, and collective effort. I think that COVID has been kind of interesting for the, that in a, in a, fucked up way where it's like, well, we all have to now just take a step back and think about things and do things collectively. If we're going to get through it, we need, like we're all in this together and we're all in COVID together. We're all in climate change together. And maybe, you know, I mean, you, you don't meet a lot of young people who don't think it's pretty fucking serious and don't really want to, you know, I don't know, maybe there are, young people out there who don't, but they seem to take it quite seriously. So look, I think we're fucked. Um, and I, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> All right, um, we need to start finishing up, uh, particularly because I was a little late this morning. So um, uh, I'm aware of the time, but there's a few more questions that I just like to ask at the Please. end. Um, so you talked about planning funerals. If you were planning your own, what would you hope that people said about you at your funeral? Not what will they say, but what would you most hope? What would please you the most if someone said about you how they remembered you? Um. Oh, gosh. Um, what would I want people to... I hope just on balance, you know, I make people feel better and not worse. That's <laughs> I good. hope, you know, my presence in someone's life is overall more positive than negative. <laughs> I mean, it's not much of a eulogy if someone gets up there and goes, look, overall, my experience of her was more positive <laughs> than negative. Anyway, that's if anyone else has got anything to say, no, no, no we all agree. <laughs> Um, I have a magic wand. I do not have a magic wand, by the way, but uh, if I did have a magic wand and I was able Mm. to grant you the ability to have any skill in the world. So any skill, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just immediately have this skill uh, and that skill can, it's any, you can interpret that in whatever way you would like, but what skill would you love to be able to just have? Oh, I am, I would love to be able to to draw. I am the shittest drawer on the planet. I have had people save my attempts at Pictionary because I'm so bad and everything be- everything becomes a cock because I panic. I panic and suddenly there's a cock and bollocks, right? Every time. I don't know what I'm trying to do, but it's always a cock and I, I panic draw cocks. Anyway, I and I'm I'm have terrible insecurity about it. And my sister my sister's an illustrator, which makes things worse because she's so talented. Uh, so it's like she got all of those genes and I got like sort of the the cavity the rotting cavity where those genes should be just a big gaping fungal hole of lack of ability to draw so i would i would love that i'd love to be able to be a phenomenal um illustrator uh james fosdyke who does all the original artwork for this podcast and what he'll do is he'll do there'll be four portraits of you and they'll each have like a quote from this podcast and i guarantee you 100 <laughs> percent one of them will be i panic draw cocks <laughs> i have no i i leave i leave the quote selection to james because he's doing the art but i have never known anything to be more a hundred percent sure that there is going to be a beautiful portrait of you with i panic draw cocks underneath in oh, quotation good. marks oh uh, good well that's uh that's something to look forward to I'll, I'll i'll frame that one for the kids shall i pop it in their bedroom final question uh i have a time machine now i don't have a time machine mm. again for legal reasons i need to point that out oh, but okay. uh, the rules of this time machine question are pretty simple it is a round trip so you can't go somewhere and stay You have to come back because I need Mm -hmm. the machine from the next person. You do not need to do something for the good of humanity. You don't have to go back and kill baby Hitler or anything like that. Um, I'm going to send somebody more appropriately qualified to go back and do those sort of things. Uh, This is purely for your own personal use for one round trip. You can go to the future. You can go back into the past. You can go to a point in your own life and try to change it or observe it. I don't mind. You can do with it whatever you want to do with it, but you have one round trip on a time machine. What do you do? This is the moment where if you'd listened to the podcast, you would have been more prepared. Yeah, You do realise this in retrospect, that if you'd just had a listen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't have even had to listen. I could have just been like, hey, mate, just spoken to someone who's done it. I haven't listened to Will's 
fucking rubbish podcast. What's the questions <laughs> at the end? Um, okay, I am going to go. Um, where am I going to go? I. Ooh. Maybe I'll go to the future. Because, like, you can kind of go to the past a bit, the books, whatever. I'll go to the future. So maybe I'll go, like, and it's a round trip. So it's like, even if, like, the world's blown up, I can still come back, right? Yep. Like, if I go to the future and there's no oxygen, I can still come back. Like, you've got that bit sorted. You don't have to get out of the machine. Like, if you great, get great, to great. if the- you get to the future and it's just, like, a burning, desolate earth or something like that, you can just yeah. go, that doesn't look like something I need to have a little walk around. I'll just pop back. But yeah. you are popping back then to current times with the knowledge that in however many years you went into the future, there's nothing left. Something. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go 500 years into the future. Optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Is that in the hope that we've rebuilt by then? (laughs) Yeah. And then I just want to know, like, did we do it? What did we do? Uh, What have we done? I want to go 500 years into the future and be like, okay. Because also it's like, it's fine. Because it's like, if I come back, it's like, cool, look, uh, look, okay, the world's over, but like, you know, my kids aren't going to live for 500 years. It's not like I've gone like 70 years into the future and have to see the fact that mm. they're going to, you know, not have oxygen or whatever. So, yeah, 500 years into the future, and I just want to be like, well, fancy that. Fancy <laughs> that. And then I'll come back and be really smug. I'll occasionally drop things into a conversation. People will be like, gosh, she's really smart or she's, you know. Yeah, I will do that. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not sure that you would actually have that much because 500 years in the future is inconceivable to us. I mean, think 500 years ago, if you went back 500 years and you tried to explain what's currently going on to people 500 years ago, they wouldn't be able to comprehend a framework for understanding what we're talking about. So the idea that 500 years in the future would even be anything that you learnt then would be recognisable to bring back to now is very optimistic, I think. Will, are you mansplaining to me 500 years into the future? (laughs) I'm mansplaining time travel. If there is one area that men are still able to mansplain, it is the obsession with time travel questions, clearly. So are you, are you publicly shaming me? Hey, I, mate, I've, got to get, I've got to get my material going for season two. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for sharing so much. It's been a really brilliant chat. I mean, we've never had the opportunity like to have a chat like this at all. And so I um, could not have enjoyed it more. I, I thought it was absolutely Aww. fascinating and I really appreciate you doing the show. I couldn't uh, recommend a rep rehab, reputation rehab. Uh, it'll be on the ABC 9-ish on a Wednesday night. I think it's immediately after Gruen, so which means it's probably 9.05 right. or 9.06. It is. It's 9.05. 9.07, depending how mm. long our show is that we deliver. 9.05, Will. <laughs> Wrap up. It's a bit of a floating number, The <laughs> how many minutes of Gruen we do weekly, but <laughs> it's somewhere around that. And, uh, yeah, I think that this is a show that people are really going to – if you like this show, if you like listening to this, I think you're really going to enjoy the show. And Kirsten's on next week as well, so we'll have a chat to her about, you know, what her experience of it was as well. So thank you so much for doing this. If people want to, um, you know, know more about any other work that you're doing, is there a place that they can go to? Is Do you have like a, you know, place that are you are, do you have a website? Like is social media the best place or would you prefer they just ignore you other than the show? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a website. Um, I have a, 
I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I don't do a lot there. I on Instagram post a lot of pictures of my my kids. They're really cute. And on Twitter, I kind of lurk, um, lurk <laughs> like a little weirdo and listen to other people and digest things and don't participate at all. Um, so if you want to do that with me, yeah. um, <laughs> at, at Zoe NL. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Thank you. Thank you.